Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Monday morning, I send out a storytelling tip to my email subscribers, and I talk about how I have used it in my own storytelling for my clients and for myself, and I leave you with tangible advice on how you can apply it to your strategies. If this sounds like something that would interest you, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Again, that's rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that helps you tell heartfelt stories to maximize your impact in minimal time. Find out more about what we do at sixsecondstories.com. Hello, storytellers. Welcome back to the Storytelling Lab. My name is Rain Bennett. I'm your host, and we have an extra special episode for you today. This is episode 79 of season six. And just like season five, we're going to do every other episode. We're going to have our long form guest interviews like we had last week with Heather H. Bennett, where we talked about creative personal brand building. And then in between, we're going to have these smaller episodes where I talk about my specific journey and the, the skills and the lessons that I have learned the hard way through storytelling. So today is a very unique episode because what we're going to do is look at and break down my first storytelling competition ever, which I won. 
It's called a story slam, and it was put on by the Monty, which is a local organization uh, here in Durham, North Carolina. And I'm going to tell you the story about it, then we're going to listen to it and break it down and decide why I won, what things stood out that made it great. Were there any areas for improvement? I'll go ahead and let you know. There were a couple, not many, but a couple. Uh, So let me paint the picture for you a little bit. You're probably familiar with the Raise Up Journey, or the film that I made that I worked on for for five years. And after after I got done with that, I was looking for some real alignment in my career. And I understood that the skill I had developed was how to tell great great stories when you don't have a lot of resources. And I knew a lot of people were, were struggling with that. And then, and so I knew this storytelling thing was going to be my thing, right? And I knew that probably one of the best ways I could get my thoughts and views out there about storytelling was to do public speaking. So I made a goal at the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018 to do more public speaking. I didn't really know where to start, but I just I knew I wanted to start telling my stories. And one one way I did that was through writing. I got an article published, my first article published in Breaking Muscle, which was about um, uh, my baby who was on the way and how I knew it was a girl and uh, my daughter will never do girl push-ups. And it was about how we should never call them girl push-ups. Anyway, they're modified push-ups. Um, and that led to an article in the Huffing- Huffington Post and now my weekly column at chapelboro.com. So I was working that muscle. Okay, how am I going to get out and start doing it uh, with public speaking? And the first thing I did was Toastmasters. You may be familiar with Toastmasters. That's a national organization, a lot of regional chapters uh, where you go and and perfect the skill of speaking. And this could be anybody who was using speaking for sales or, or presentations. A lot of different people were there. Now, I went to a few sessions, and actually I won... Uh, my first table topics, which is basically like they have a theme and they kind of call someone out of the audience to go present a two-minute talk on that topic. And, and I did win that and I felt good about that. But the first real challenge that I had was performing in the Monty's Story Slam. Now, the Monty is a local version of a, of a live storytelling competition. Uh, every month they have curated stories, which are about 12 minutes of maybe three to five storytellers. And then... Uh, in the in-between months, they have story slams. Now, these are the competitive ones, and they're five minutes on a predetermined theme, and you basically put your name in a hat, and they draw eight people, eight storytellers throughout the night, and there's a bunch of people there. It's usually at a bar, and it's like a show for them, and then and you have a competition, and you're scored by a panel of judges. This Story slam concept is widely popular right now. Uh, You may have heard of the Moth, which is all over the country, New York, San Francisco. There's also one in Asheville, North Carolina, but not in in Raleigh or Durham, which I'm not sure why they they weren't here. Uh, Risk is another one. Kevin Allison, who created that, has been on the show. He's been a guest of the Storytelling Lab, and those are about risky, vulnerable stories specifically. Uh, Ray Christian is an award-winning story slam storyteller uh, he's been on the moth and and uh and risk and he's been on the storytelling lab as well so there are a lot of different uh live storytelling events and series out there in the country the moth or the monty rather is one that's just local here to durham so i knew about it and i went and signed up and you pay your money for your ticket whether you're a storyteller or not but you do have to specify if you're going to be a storyteller but then like you never have to follow up on that so 
you could just go and attend and never put your name in the hat, which you have to do when you arrive. And so I went with my very pregnant girlfriend, who is now my wife. Uh, this was either December of 2017 or January of 2018. And I went and I put my name in the hat, which was actually just a, a beer pitcher jar, an empty beer pitcher. Folded my name up and, and put it in there. And we sat down and we listened to, to storytellers. Um, pretty quickly, pretty soon into the night, I was nervous. I'll, I'll admit, I was, my heart was beating fast and I was doing like Wim Hof breathing exercises to calm down. Like nothing had happened yet. Hadn't been called, you know, but I was just like nervous. And I was also watching the other storytellers go and like audibly, or at least like to myself, my wife could hear it. My girlfriend at the time, my wife now could hear me saying like, Oh, well, that that wasn't really that that great. Like, I don't, I don't really think that one was good. She's like, "Why are you, babe? Why are you doing that?" <laughs> well, I was doing that to make myself feel better in case I got called up there. But I was judging them, and I was also like critiquing them. Uh, and and what a lot of them got wrong was they were many of them were entertaining, but they didn't really tell a story. And I knew that because I'd already studied studied what a story is and story structure. And they would just kind of talk about the topic, the theme that night was secrets. So they'd be telling secrets they had with their best friend when they were in middle school. And it was kind of funny. But some of them would just kind of talk about it loosely as a loose collection of events and not really tie it together in a narrative. Because that's a certain structure of a, of a little package and you tie a bow on it when you tell a story. So I already noticed it's like, they're just, it's almost like comedy. Like every, every story was comedic and, and they were up there just kind of doing stand-up, really. So I was like, okay, well, I think I might be able to, to get at this. I think I might be able to do something. So after four storytellers, there's intermission. I go and get a refill, get another beer. And I'm legit like, uh, well, you know, they probably won't call my name. Like, we've already been here an hour. Like, maybe, maybe we should go. And my wife was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, stop. We're, we're here for this. We're staying. You're, you're, you're staying the whole time. I was like, all right. My heart was beating. Like, I was searching for the door. I was ready to go. Well, then we came back from intermission. The fifth name was called if the storyteller went. And then the sixth one came, and they said, here, come uh, up next to the stage is Rain Bennett. Well, my goodness, my heart was really beating hard now, and I was legit doing those breathing exercises as I walked up the steps. And I walked up the steps, and I shook the host's hand, and I, I went up there, and I, I stood underneath the blinding spotlights, I couldn't see anyone in, in the audience. And this is the story that I told. So uh, on Christmas Eves and really a lot of nights throughout the year, I would sneak into my big brother's room and, and stay with him and sleep with him in the bed. And I don't think it's much of a secret because I think my mom knew every time. But, uh, you know, he'd, he'd make up little stories and we'd giggle our little asses off. And, and, and he'd tell me that he would scratch my back if I scratched his. And I'd do like a really good job for 10 minutes and then he'd pretend he was asleep. And so I'd never get my back scratched. Or he'd like poke me, tickle me until I screamed and my mom would come in and like fuss at us. Uh, you know, typical big brother stuff. And we, he was like seven years older than me, but we were really, really, really close. And I also remember these really sweet moments where he would like hum the tune to Greensleeves, the folk song to me until I fell asleep, like re really touching stuff. Um, and on Christmas Eve, we'd always hear like these noises around the house, like this, these kind of like rumbles and, and tumbles and things like that. And my brother would always get really quiet and he'd go, shh, Rain, listen. I think that's the reindeer on the roof. 
And I'd crouch down beside him. And I'd be like, I hear it, I hear it. And he'd be like, well, we better go back to bed because Santa Claus isn't going to bring us any presents. And I'm like, oh, shit. Run back to the bed. <laughs> lay in there, go to sleep. So <laughs> i got to get my presents. Um, and so this particular Christmas Eve, same thing happens. We hear the rumbles and the tumbles. Bo says it's the reindeer on the roof. That's my brother's name, Bo. And I run and hop in bed, close my eyes as tight as I can, and I try to fall asleep, and I'm kind of drifting, drifting. And then, boom! We hear the loudest, loudest thing that we've heard. It shook the whole fucking house. I don't know what's going on. My brother hops out of the bed, sprints. He doesn't skip a beat. Sprints to the door. Doesn't even look, on me, look for me, and I'm right behind him. We sprint down the hallway, we turn the corner to the living room, and we see my dad standing there with my mom's hair wrapped in his hand, holding her down like that, and she's screaming, trying to break away. See, my dad was a drunk, and those noises that we heard weren't my parents putting the presents together every Christmas, because apparently he was worse around the holidays, but see, I didn't know that because my brother kept it from me. And so we're screaming, and my mom's screaming, and she's like, Bo, get him off me, get him off me. And my brother, he doesn't know what to do. He's 12 years old, and he looks down at the Christmas tree, and he sees a brand-new Wilson tennis racket with a red bow on it. And he runs up and grabs it, 12 years old and, and terrified, and cocks it back like a baseball bat. He was a pretty good baseball player. And my dad's back is turned to him. And he swings as hard as he can, and just as he does, my dad still has my mom's hair in his hands, turns to look, and the racket, wham, hits him right in the eye, busts his head open, blood's going everywhere. And my dad screams, you broke my goddamn head, you broke my goddamn head. And he runs to the sink in the kitchen, blood spilling everywhere, and he gets grabbing washcloths. And I remember sitting there, this is a really vivid memory, and I'm like, can you break your head? Like, that's, swear to God. Like, it's not an arm. And I'm like, like even at five years old, I was still a dick about semantics. <laughs> anyway, so now we're in save drunk daddy mode, right? And we all pile into the station wagon like a drunken redneck Griswolds, uh, which, in painting that picture, is pretty much like Uncle Eddie instead. <laughs> for those vacation fans out there. Um, right, thank you. Um, and so we're tearing off going to the emergency room, and my mom and dad are going back and forth trying to decide what we're going to tell the doctors and the people at the ER. My dad's coming up with stupid shit that doesn't make any sense. Ultimately, they land on that he was going outside to get the Christmas presents, and he tripped on the steps and fell and busted his head on the concrete under the carport. And so we walk into the ER as a family, and the nurses wheel my dad back, and I hear him, like, saying the wrong story as he's being wheeled away. And we're all just, like, in different stages of crying. And I'm sitting there five years old holding my mom's hand. My mom's crying. My brother's sobbing. Hasn't said a word since it happened. She's got her arm around him. And I, I looked up, and I was just like, Mama, why didn't we tell them what really happened? Why didn't we tell them the truth? And she looked down and said, because, baby, sometimes we don't tell people our family secrets. Okay, so that was admittedly a little heavy, but about 10, 10 or 15 or 20 minutes later, uh, after I got the, the scores from the judges, 
I was sitting atop the rest of the class. I think there was two stories left to go, and I won my first storytelling slam ever with a score of like 27.2, 27.4, something like that, an average of, of nines out of, out of 10. And the, the closest person was a couple of points away from that, maybe 25.6 or, or something like that. I was a, it was a pretty good lead, but I was so pumped. Now let's talk about the things that stood out and why I won that competition. Now I'm going to go ahead and start off with how I was feeling leading up to it. I already told you I was nervous leading up to it, but I also told you that all the other stories were comedic in nature and tone. Well, I started getting confident at the same time as feeling insecure and scared. Let me go ahead and, and clarify that they can both coexist. They are not mutually exclusive. You can be confident and insecure at the same time, surprisingly. But I was like, oh, they're not going to be ready for this. Like they've been having like little light laughs all, all, all you know, there was an easy audience, all light laughs all night. Like I'm about to hit them with something heavy. And this is a great point to go ahead and make. And maybe if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. Being different is better than being better. I'll say it again. Being different is better than being better. Here's why. If you are doing the same thing as everybody else and they've seen the same type of performance all night long, it becomes really hard to notice the marginal difference between a six and a seven or an eight or a nine when they're so similar. It's really hard to determine that margin. However, if there's one that goes against the grain and it's like nothing else you've ever seen that night, it doesn't even necessarily have to be better because it's not even in the same field, the same playing field, because you don't know how to judge it compared to the other. So it automatically stands out and stands out is good because that means it rises to the top. It sticks out in their minds. They're blown away. They didn't see anything like it. I noticed this in, in the Raise Up journey. I was asked to uh, judge some of the calisthenics competitions and because they weren't some of the athletes weren't very creative they would do the same routines that other athletes would do and 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 by the end of watching it all day you couldn't tell the difference between what was good and what was great but then if you saw somebody do an original move it immediately shot them to the top of the uh, of the heap that's exactly what was going on here so going in i was like they are not prepared for this this is going to catch them off guard now let's dive a little bit deeper, a little more specific. What are some of the things that I think I did well on that? Well, the setup I think was great. I think that there were small things that really hooked people and make them lean in. Here's one. Here's one example. When I started whispering, what's that, Bo? I think that's the reindeer on the roof. That little stage whisper wasn't necessarily quieter decibel-wise, maybe a little bit, but... They knew it's a whisper, and so you automatically lean in, and, and you get quiet so you can hear, and it's just a change of pace. It's a change of, of, of tone. I've always said that story should be like a roller coaster, ups and downs and twists and turns and fast parts and slow parts. Also, if you're doing it live, loud parts and soft parts, right? You're breaking up the monotony, and you're keeping them interested. So just leaning in and giving a little whisper. Hooked them. Now they're paying attention. 
What else did I do in that opening part in the intro? I think I did a good job of painting that visual scene. And I did that by using, by a, appealing and playing to their senses, right? I talked about the, the, the sound, the feel of, of scratching my back, the sound of the pitter-patter on the, on the roof. I talked about these things, these visual things that you could see. I got very specific with the detail, the, the sound of the booms that we would hear running back and nestling in the bed, just little adjectives here and there and, and verbs that, that really specifically design, defined, rather, defined the experience and set the scene and painted the scene, as I like to say. You could almost, you know, see my brother and, and, and myself in those bunk beds. You could picture a bunk bed. Even that in itself, just the bunk bed descriptor, does a great job of painting that picture in your audience's mind, and that is key. Another thing that I did that I think was really effective in the beginning was I set it up to be comedic. Just like I knew it was going to get heavy, you can't just be heavy. Just like the roller coaster, there has to be funny parts, sweet parts, sad parts, bad parts, whatever. And I knew I had this big hook coming. And so these people were set up for a comedy. They were giggling, uh, talking about, you know, me high, you know, running back to the bed so I could get my presents. They were giggling about me scratching my brother's back and him not scratching mine in return. Even when I heard the boom and, and started running down the hall, I heard someone laugh like nervously because they were interested and they weren't sure what it was, but they thought they're still in a comedy. Then as I'm leading them down the hall, I feel like I did a great job of that sequence building that tension and spiking their cortisol and dopamine levels because each thing was like, boom. First of all, let's talk about the boom. There's another change of volume. We had the whisper earlier, then we had the boom. Well, if they weren't paying attention before that point, they were or they were then. Boom, you hear this noise. My brother shoots up, runs to the door. I jump up, run after him. He runs down the hall. I run down behind him. He turns the corner. We turn, and here's what we see. Like that whole sequence is making the audience's mind be like, oh crap, what is it? They're, you know, they're following along and each each sentence I say, each each segment that I say, they're wanting to know what happens next. So much so that it peaks when we turn that corner and they're dying to know what they see. And then when I reveal that, and it's the heavy, dark moment of my dad with his hand wrapped around my mom's hair. And you can't see the, the video. You can see it if you want to see it online. But I, I mimed that with my hand like you're, I'm spinning my hand in a circle, rotating my wrist as if I was winding hair around it. And then when I revealed that, there was an audible gasp. Maybe you heard it. But there was a gasp at that reveal. Well, I had him hooked for the rest of the story. They were not going anywhere. We were connected. There wasn't, you could hear a pin drop, as they say. Throughout the night, you could hear people kind of talking and murmuring with each other. We're at a bar. Everybody's drinking. There's like 300 people there. I don't even think you could hear the glasses clinking at, at, uh, from the bartender, which you could hear periodically through the story during that moment. Everyone was quiet, and I had them hooked. So after that, another another good job with this, describing these moments and these these images that people could see. It's all about painting the picture and them seeing images. So the red bow on the Wilson tennis racket. I mean, if you were raised in the 80s or 90s, you know what that W looks like. And of course, you can picture a red bow on a tennis racket. Talking about the blood shooting out. 
And then another key use of comedy, because that was tense, and these people didn't know how to respond. They weren't ready for something that heavy, and they weren't sure how to respond. And you've got all this tension built up. Well, you got to release some of that. you got to let them go. You're, you've been clinching them for 30 or 60 seconds with that heavy story. you got to let that go. So I had some strategic comic relief there when I talked about, can you break your head? That was a real thought, by the way. That was totally authentic. But I knew that would get a little laugh, or I hoped it would, and it got a really good one because the people were desperate for a laugh. It probably wasn't actually that funny, but they were just desperate to let go of some of that tension. Here's a slip up. I don't want to sit here and talk about all the things I did great, although I did win, so I could, you know, it's a fact that I did good. But here's something I could have improved on. When I talked about now we're in saved drunk daddy mode, and I made the reference to the vacation family from National Lampoon's Vacation, Christmas Vacation, all that. The Griswolds, Chevy Chase's character, his family. Well, that might have been too specific, too esoteric of a reference. Not everybody's going to get the reference, and I don't mean to say that you can't make references, but if they didn't know those movies or even didn't remember the name of the family in those movies, they might have remembered Vacation because, see, I didn't even say the Vacation family, which maybe I should have. I said the Griswolds. So I got a few laughs, but was it worth it if I took people out of that moment? There were 300 people there, and I got like three laughs from that which I called out and made another laugh. But was it worth sacrificing another 297? Probably not. Then what did I do wrong after that? I took it even further into the, the inside baseball or the, uh, or the esoteric world where then I said, well, if it was the drunken uh, Griswolds, that's probably uh, his brother, Uncle, or I didn't even say his brother. I said Uncle Eddie. That's Randy Quaid's character. If you watch Christmas Vacation, the one with the RV who's pumping the crap out in the neighborhood. So I didn't... they could have thought I was talking about my Uncle Eddie, you know, like, I wasn't clear about that, and it was a reference that probably alienated some people, they didn't get it, I probably could have even said we piled into the car like the Beverly Hillbillies, that might have appealed to more people, or more people would have understood that, but I think now would go back and say it in a different way, or just say we piled into the car, because I kind of went off on this tangent that wasn't really related to the story and didn't move the story forward, it kind of took us laterally and almost out of the moment, so that was a point where I could have really sacrificed it if I wasn't careful, but I got us back on track, lead us to the hospital. I have a few little more moments of of, uh, humor in there, like my dad being wheeled down the, the hallway and saying the wrong thing. But then I think the other thing besides going against the grain and being different that allowed me to win was the way I ended this story. First of all, let's pause and talk about length and story structure. We already talked about many of the people in the competition weren't actually telling stories. Another thing they all did was this was supposed to be a five-minute story. If you did it, if you went to six minutes, there was a noise that came on, uh, the loudspeaker as a warning, and then if you went to seven, you started getting penalized. Nobody didn't get the six-minute warning. Some people got the seven-minute warning, and hopefully a deduction. I I wasn't a judge, and I didn't see their, their scores or know if they deducted, but I knew I didn't want that, and I practiced. I practiced a lot to get it to be five minutes. It's supposed to be a five-minute story. So mine was a perfect arc, a beginning, a middle, and end, a climax, a resolution, uh, you know, rising action before the climax. I knew that I had a great story. So I, what, again, I was insecure, but I also was confident because I knew that, and I knew it was five minutes. And I'm really glad it was because the sixth minute, this is somewhat 
a tangent, but the noise they make for whatever reason, their, their mascot at the Monty is a hippo. So the noise they make is like a, oh, 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 oh. it's like a hippo mating sound or something. That's the joke. So it's like funny. Every time it comes on, it gets a laugh. Well, I knew in that part, I was going to be in the heavy part of the story and I didn't want to be interrupted by that. That would really would have taken people out of the moment. So I really wanted to do that and complete it. And I did. It was like five minutes and 10 seconds, 15 seconds. But then at the end, I had ramped us up, busted the head, we had a laugh, jumped in the car, raced to the hospital, got him in there, he got wheeled down the in the gurney, down the hallway, saying the wrong thing, and all that pace has been pretty fast, right? Boom, 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 boom. And then what did I do? I slowed it down, and I said, and then we all sat there in various stages of crying. My brother, blah, 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 myself, blah, blah, blah. And I look up at my mom, and I say, why didn't we tell them the what really happened? Why didn't we tell them the truth? And my mom looks down at me. And so, like, I'm also, like, setting up this, right? Because they're wanting to know what comes next, and I have a pace and a rhythm, but it's slowed down a lot. So, again, now they're leaning in again. My mom looks down at me and says, because, baby, sometimes we don't tell people our family secrets. And that is another key point. The final word of my story was the theme of the night. Not once in the whole story had I uttered that word. I did allude to it when I said that I didn't know my dad was an alcoholic because my brother kept it from me. So that was a little hat tip to the theme, but I didn't mention it. Other people were saying like, when you're fifth, when you're in middle school, you had these secrets with your girlfriends. You know they they were overdoing it with the theme. So I didn't neglect the theme. I strategically structured the whole story so that the final word you heard was arguably the strongest word of the night of the story, but even of the night. That was totally totally strategic, and I ended on that note so that they knew what this story was about. So that is something I want you to consider so much when telling your stories, is how you end it. Not just how you end it, but knowing what the ending is. So many people in that competition either ended like, and so, and that's my story about secrets. Or they had a perfect ending and then rambled for another minute and a half where they just kind of drifted off. Knowing How you're going to end is just as important as knowing how you're going to begin. Your first statement and your last statement are the most important of the entire story. you got to start with a hook that reels them in, but you end with a knockout punch. Now get out there and practice telling your own story. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 